I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Danielle Jose Gastambide, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the New School for Social Research and a practicing psychologist. His new book, A People's History of Psychoanalysis, From Freud to Liberation Psychology, is just out from Roman and Littlefield. A launch event for this book is Thursday, April 30th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. I guess, you know, firstly, recognizing that, you know, even though this is the format in which you, you know, naturally conduct these interviews, it is so very surreal and different and strange to be relating almost 24-7 day after day through this medium with patients and with students and family and friends. And now this, like my, um, almost like my life is being contained within like a frame, <laughs> a very different kind of frame. Um, even though before this COVID crisis, maybe maybe 25% of my caseload was telehealth, it definitely feels different to have everything, like every, every beat of life be communicated through this medium and always wrestling with what both what gets lost as well as what, weirdly enough, can still feel the same. Like for many people, I feel like the work continues to be like just as meaningful and almost unabated by the change in format. And then for others, it feels like a real disruption. Like sometimes it's actually a helpful disruption because it's shaken people out of habitual ways of being. Uh, But underlying all of it, of course, it's a huge sense of disruption that doesn't feel so generative. And that's really, um, at times, crazy-making. Um, I've been having a lot of talk with students in particular about the fact that they would have started their their doctoral career. So I, so I guess to give a little context, I'm an assistant professor at the New School for Social Research, and I'm involved there with both the psychoanalytic psychotherapy training as well as the multicultural and social justice training. So for a lot of those students, the way that they're ending their year is so different 
than what they imagine their doctoral career would have been like. They're doing therapy in a way that they likely never imagined. So trying to hold myself as well as also try to hold all these, you know, other people that I'm taking care of in some way, patients, students, family, whatever, um, gets pretty wild. <laughs> like at, at different points, I have to just pull away from my desk, my home office and just walk around at home or do something else to refuel and reground myself. Um, otherwise we might as well go the way of the matrix and just plug ourselves into some, some online system and upload our souls in some way. We're not quite there yet, but, but there's something so, um, interesting about all this from a, a science fiction perspective about how our relationships change and our, um, ways of being in the world and even our own psyches. So it's very, um, yeah, it's very interesting to like contextualize all of this against that backdrop. And then to also think of some of the themes of the book, um, which have only gotten, I feel, um, like further heightened in the state that we're in. Like, um, you know, some people feel like, oh, well, COVID has become the great equalizer. You know, we're all in this together. We're all suffering through this thing the same. Um, and there's, you know, a little speck of truth to that. But in reality, we had like wild, rampant, out of control capitalism before this crisis, insane racial and wealth inequality before this crisis. And all of that has just deepened in ways that make all of this all the more visible for more people to see. Um, many masks, or you prefer from a Jungian sense, many personas are just falling off and revealing the nature of this world that we live in, haves and have-nots, privilege and power, and the way that all of that winds up wiring um, our minds and our relationships. So <laughs> starting... Starting in a very heavy place here, but but the air I feel is is uh, is pregnant with these issues, and uh, part of the work of the the book and part of the work of my scholarship is to try to bring greater psychoanalytic depth to how to think about these issues. Of course, in the consulting room, of course, with our patients, but also taking this work off the couch and into the streets, which has become. Um, I don't know how it is in Europe, but at least here in the States, that's become kind of a, a slogan for many of us doing um, progressive social justice work from a psychoanalytic perspective, that we want to honor the work that's come before us as clinicians, as clinical theorists. But I think especially if we value clinical work, we have to think outside of the consulting room. So, for example... Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book um, that other folks like Elizabeth Danto and uh, Lou Aaron and Karen Starr have touched on was that, you know, there was a point in time when Freud and the early analysts advocated for universal health care that had parity with mental health. And they cared very much about the world outside of the psychotherapy room as much as within it. And so similarly, um, I've often thought that Many of us, especially those of us who are in the United States, which does not have a um, national healthcare system, that we can't just complain about the forces that lead to shorter-term therapy 
or how reimbursement through insurance is bad and whatever. We, we have to actually do something about it and join with other communities and voices to think through, well, what kind of economic, social, and political system could sustain psychoanalysis and sustain psychoanalysis for everybody? Um, Patricia Garovici, a great psychoanalytic um, thinker here in the States and psychoanalytic clinician, talks about how you know the, the, the poor uh, aren't able um, we can't treat the poor and the marginalized like they're unable to afford and are unconscious. Everybody's got one. So we need to start thinking about how to maybe have, um, you know, psychoanalysis for all um, or a psyche for all, not just the rich and the well-to-do. Um, I also have some hopes related to that, um, that psychoanalytic thinking, psychoanalytic practice and training may get shaken up by this whole situation. If before people were like, no, if you do telehealth, you're going to lose something about the psychoanalytic process. Well, guess what? You don't have a choice anymore. Either you switch to telehealth or you lose your practice. Um, so as much, again, as I think there's a lot of chaos and disruption and trauma, um, I'm hopeful that this could open new gates for psychoanalysis to reinvent itself and restore, uh, recapture the flexibility and the spirit of experimentation that actually existed during the times of Freud and that first generation, where psychoanalysis wasn't just the one technique and the one thing, but something that was always ongoing and evolving. I love that. That's perfect. And let's make sure to mention the name of your new book. It's uh, A People's History of Psychoanalysis from Freud to Liberation Psychology. Yes. <laughs> That's nice. You already have it in your hands. And you're having yeah. a launch event this Thursday, April 30th, via the New School Zoom at like 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and I can share the, the link and note with that with you later, even post it in your copy. But, yeah, it's, it's a very exciting event. Um, so before this whole uh, COVID situation that we're all in, the, the vision for the event was to have um, you know, folks in my community who are artists, activists, um, come together with psychoanalytic theorists and clinicians and to have you know, kind of a different sort of book launch um, that combine, like, you know, voices of the community alongside, of course, you know, thinkers and scholars and all that, um, but to bring that together within a community discussion. Um, before COVID, it, it was very much going to be centered on the themes of racial and economic inequality in the book. Um, now that's just, it's still going to be about that, but contextualized into how this moment brings all these issues into sharp relief. Um, and so folks can register at that link, and then the day of or the day before, they'll get a, a link to actually go into the, the Zoom virtual auditorium space. Um, and, and it's very interesting. Like, I was initially thinking of canceling it because of this whole situation, but then I was convinced by my peers, like, no, let's just go ahead and do it and do it in this format which actually makes it so that not just people in New York City could attend, but folks from around the country, and I'm finding out also internationally, um, are signing up to, 
be part of the event and be part of the conversation. That's great. I have to say it's so surreal to add an extra layer to this whole thing is that you mentioned backdrop earlier and you have the 50 shrinks uh, book in your background and that yeah. office with Jameson falling on the couch. Jameson and I used to share that office. So it's like oh, we're in word. this like virtual sphere, but like my office is behind you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, just to show them, for the folks who can't see it at home, hold on, hold on, this is, this is too rich. So it's too act, rich. Look it's at like that. meta, meta, matrix, what's happening. <laughs> I know, I know, isn't it grand? Um, when I was setting up my, my office for telehealth, I thought, you know, what items could I have in the background that really captured, you know, who I am as a person, as a therapist? Um, and this definitely felt like one of them, like that sense of, what I'd call psychoanalytic quirk and character. I love um, it. I love course, that office so much. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm glad, I'm glad we could take you back. <laughs> glad we take you back to happier times. <laughs> mm, it was funny. Yeah. And as far as telehealth, so I left, I was in New York till 2017 and I moved to Sweden then. And so my practice kind of moved online remotely just through my own move it wasn't something I planned to do and it was something I was like really hesitant about and like had a lot all the usual qualms of how is this going to work and what's going to get lost but you know for some analysands it didn't work out I tried to refer Mm -hmm. everybody to someone in local and some people Mm -hmm. just refused and some people did end up going with the referral I recommended in New York and then some people ended up staying like you said for some people it was kind of seamless and it was fine and for others it was like too much of a disruption yeah so yeah so I think like you're saying as well it's good to be having an extra tool I can reach more people I can offer like a greater sliding scale because I'm not paying for my own office space right now Mm -hmm. things like Mm -hmm. that so there's like potential benefits to it and then you know of course for people who would rather just have the traditional office they can have that you know (laughs) <laughs> you don't totally. have to switch to telehealth normally all the time unless this really is the forever future. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. I mean, but even even if we go back to some new normal or we can go back outside and go back to offices and whatever, um, like I may still keep a lot of aspects of this. Like before, um, before the crisis, I did a lot of work with folks um, – particularly folks of color who lived in communities where, you know, either there wasn't access to mental health services or there weren't um, really any like therapist of color in their um, in their community. And uh, being able to do that work remotely, even before all this was very meaningful because I could be like I live in New York City. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm surrounded by all these people and resources but then there are folks who live in much more rural communities where, you know, that may not be able to connect with somebody that they feel can really get them. So the thought of like, oh, okay, we can go back to normal, but would I go back to 25% or would I keep it maybe 50% telehealth and 50% in the room? Um, I found it clinically working all too well to not really consider like, oh, I could actually do more work remotely and in the office. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, like last summer, I was looking for an office here because I was finally like settled with my residency and everything. And then mm -hmm. I found like the perfect office and near my house and everything I wanted. And then I realized maybe I don't really want to have an office right now because then, you know, it's a huge responsibility. Yeah. I have to pay for the office. And um, I had started writing more and reading more yeah. because I was home more and I didn't, I wasn't at work 10 hours a day. So mm -hmm. I've just kept like a more like life clinical work balance instead of just like having yeah. clinical work you know 40 hours a week totally that, that was one of the first things I noticed where when I was in my office I might end my day at 7 38 commute back home get home like 8 30 to 9 now it's like I finish my day typically around 6 <laughs> and then I can just roll over. <laughs> exactly. Go into Literally the next room. Exactly. <laughs> My couch is there. I go watch TV. <laughs> like um, taking the commute out of it and not having the the days and, uh, you know, not having the days be so long and being able to already be at home has felt so restful in a way that, you know, in the before times, <laughs> I would start, you know, some, some nights, you know, especially of a, the metro was being a pain could get home later and that could be really draining um like with all the uh with all the attending like privileges of you know i have a home i have work that i'm able to do remotely like it it gives me an ability to breathe that many other people in, are not able to have just because of the way that our society is set up right like right now people are um especially in our community, psychoanalysts, psychologists, working from home, um, maybe going across the street to the grocery store or having something delivered um, and not paying enough attention to, you know, a whole world of people who are keeping everything afloat by putting their, their bodies on the line. So the question of the body as this discombobulated head on your screen, right, um, a body that suddenly becomes virtual and amorphous versus bodies that are even further objectified, especially with their labor and literally putting themselves at risk so that others can receive treatment or uh, get resources, etc., really begs a real reckoning, um, not just with the obvious political questions of how should our society be organized, but even with our psychoanalytic models of how we even think about the body now, like the game has to be fundamentally changed. It really does. I mean, there's so the the problems in the systems are so pervasive. They're just like at every single level. How do you imagine us reimagining this? Reimagining like our society, you mean, our kind of global system? I mean, in in the states, you know, you have you have uh, austerity and how are you going to pay for this? All that nonsense, so beaten into your head. Um, actually, let me share with you a quick uh, personal story before I jump into that. So, when I was uh, going on internship, when I was in graduate school for my clinical program, I decided, oh, I want to, I don't know, do something. Like I've never really traveled internationally. You know, life was always like Puerto Rico and then New York City, but never travel abroad. And I was like, oh, maybe I want, if I want to go to Europe, maybe Spain, I can use my Spanish. Oh, maybe England. 
And then I was like, no, let me let me do something completely out of my element and go to Paris, France. I don't speak French. I'll get Duolingo on my phone. It'll be great. Uh, but then uh, I went and um, I had a, a, a small accident where I was trying to crank open a window and the edge of the crank was sharp and it wound up accidentally cutting my arm. And I was, you know, freaking out like, oh, my God, I'm hurt. I'm bleeding. I should go to the hospital and immediately felt this anxiety. You know, I'm in a foreign country. I don't know how things work here. Um, am I, you know, would I go and be hit with like a ginormous bill that I can't possibly afford? Oh, my God. So I became the most American I had ever been. And I took a bottle of whiskey that I bought, poured it over the wound, <laughs> wrapped it up in paper towels and a belt, you know, to tight, uh, tighten the wound. And then just spent the night, you know, sipping, sipping my whiskey and thinking about how I had pulled myself up by my bootstraps and, you know, treated my own wound. And um, when I came back stateside, I went to my doctor. You know, the thing was healing, but, you know, of course, I, I didn't know <laughs> if it would get infected or something. And I went to my doctor and I told them what happened. And they were just like, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, why? Why didn't you go to the hospital? They have a way better system than we do. You would have been fine, essentially. Um, and that's when I realized, my God, like I had so internalized these ideas about you know, what we can afford and what we can do and how going to the hospital will break you financially, that even when I was in a system that could have actually taken care of me at very low cost, um, I wound up doing something potentially dangerous, like treating myself in an Airbnb with whiskey, right? So all this stuff gets so in our heads that oftentimes we don't think to question it. And our leaders keep saying, you know, we recently had the Democratic primary, and it was the same Republican talking points echoed by uh, Democratic contenders. Now, in the context of a crisis, suddenly we can pay for things. Suddenly, trillions of dollars can appear. For corporations. To... Exactly. For corporations. <laughs> like, before we got into this whole, you know, how do we get money to people, whatever, there was no such bullshit when it came to – and people mess out on this – that there were trillions of dollars – given to corporations before we even got to, well, what's the bailout for individual people and families? So one possibility is that people will look at this and go, well, this is an emergency. Only now we could do this, et cetera. But I think there's the potential for taking the energy of this moment and saying, wait a minute, we can afford things. Why don't we? Oh, because we're essentially footing the bill for major corporations, the wealthy and powerful well, the rest of us uh, are essentially, you know, murdering each other, either politically or quite literally. So being able to um, reimagine our society, at least here in America, as one that can be more compassionate, at one that can have more universal systems and within those universal systems have mechanisms for protecting those who are most vulnerable and most likely typically to get screwed with these kind of arrangements, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ individuals, the um, extremely poor in deep poverty. There, there's a lot of possibility, and we have to make sure that our own fear and how that fear is manipulated into identification with our oppressors doesn't keep us from seizing this moment. So more brutally, what kind of things do I envision? 
universal health care, um, complete restructuring of not just the welfare system, but also our criminal justice system, um, reimagining how we uh, essentially handle immigration within the United States so that it can be more humane, especially um, with refugees and folks fleeing their countries for both economic um, and political reasons. And ultimately getting to this place where if we, um, you know, if, if we shift from trickle-down economics to trickle-up compassion, that when everybody's taken care of, economies actually do very well and they become more resilient, right? Because people have money to spend and they're able to take care of themselves and their families. When folks don't have to wonder, oh, can I afford going to school or being afraid of I'll go to school, but then I'll be weighed down by all this debt. Um, you know, it's a major problem in psychoanalytic training. Oh, why can't we recruit more people of color, more LGBT people, et cetera? Well, there is a clear issue of cost there. You know, it's depending on the institute, it can be quite costly, a number of years and so forth. But this even starts earlier. How do you expect people from communities who've been loaded with massive debt throughout college, doctoral school, if they, you know, go to a, a clinical psych or, or a doctoral uh, social work program, then expect it to plump down anywhere from five to 10 more years of more schooling and pay money for uh, supervision and coursework and, uh, and not really making much of an income because, you know, typically analytic cases might be seen at a reduced rate. Um, it, it's a lot of different interlocking systemic problems, that if we address some of the material and structural forces that underlie these problems, maybe it'd be uh, a little easier. If I compare, for example, um, uh, you know, the diversity of something like clinical psychology compared to social work, within social work, you can have upwards of 30, sometimes 40 percent people of color um, going to school and becoming social workers compared to something like, you know, eight 10, sometimes 13 percent um, of the clinical psychology uh, PhD workforce. So, so there are real issues with real dollar signs that affect not just real people's lives, but ultimately affects the nature and quality of psychoanalysis as a field and as a community. Um, we, we need to think through, and I think this moment is forcing us to think through, how to reimagine our training how to think creatively so that folks who are incredibly talented have the skills and the know-how could engage and ultimately enrich in psychoanalysis and lead to greater intellectual diversity in how we think about these issues. Oftentimes, folks pit intellectual diversity and cultural diversity against each other, when what we find time and again is that when you have one, you can often in turn have the other. So we don't have to, nobody has to play favorites or do oppression Olympics or any of that nonsense. Um, you can uh, have a system that makes it easier for people to engage and by engaging, bring in their own wisdom and histories from their own communities. It's just not that complicated. It's not that difficult. It's not that complicated. <laughs> it's really true. It's, uh, it's the, the more... I found myself deeper into psychoanalytic training, the more I realized it's just like all these barriers there that just don't need to be there. Like there's just, mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be so difficult. No, 
You know, I have, um, I started recently mentoring um, a psychologist in the Dominican Republic, and we're talking about, you know, how could they set up reading groups in DR, psychoanalytic reading groups, you know, how could they develop an institute? And I'm like, oh, well, like nothing stops us from having you connect with any number of institutes here to have connections, Skype or Zoom people in to give talks, like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, one, why haven't we been doing this already? Two, how could we seize this moment so that we can actually, you know, provide people in other contexts, other communities, other countries with the resources, um, especially the intellectual resources, to set up their own trading institutes? Um, does it have to be the same way? I mean, let, let me be clear. I do think there's a wisdom to some of the ways that training has been constructed. Um, but we should look at the areas where, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be this way. Um, I had brought up a point at an institute meeting uh, a little while ago where I, I raised one of the points of the book that, you know, a lot of the people that really innovated and brought psychoanalysis to different cultural contexts, they didn't quote unquote, do psychoanalytic training. In some cases, they basically read Freud and started applying what they read and conducting, quote unquote, wild psychoanalyses in their home countries. Um, And I thought to myself, like, oh, well, if they were able to do it, you know, folks running the gamut from, um, you know, Juliano Moreira in Brazil to Franz Fanon in uh, the Caribbean and Algeria, then what stops us from having that kind of flexibility today? And somebody raised, oh, but that's such a one-person model. You know, what about your, uh, what about your training analysis? Like, sh- you know, should you be connected with your own um, analyst and supervisor? And I'm like, well, there's, of course, that's incredibly meaningful and important. Um, but does it need to be in the ways that we're doing it right now? Like, can the structure, like, you can have the core structure of it remain the same training courses analysis whatever but can we um can we play with the frame yeah exactly exactly as long as if you have supervision in place and now like you said people could do it zoom zoom supervision or whatsapp or whatever and talk to (laughs) analysts other places you know but they get supervision, get your own analysis, and then study. Those are like the three main components. And why can't they be put together in more creative or independent ways? Like I've heard of people that have been in analysis for a long time, like five, six years, and then got interested in becoming an analyst. But then an institute would tell them that that analyst wasn't like approved by whatever the American psychoanalytic or whatever. So then that analysis didn't count and they had to go through another analysis with their institute or whatever. It's like enough's enough. (laughs) A hundred percent. I mean, I would say right now, just speaking for my community that a psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic training went on WhatsApp. It's it's over. It's done. Like so many people would engage. Just thinking of like, you know, so many family, you know, group chats on WhatsApp and whatever. Um, But yeah, it it can stand to be more flexible. Like I know that I'm in the situation where I've been working with a psychoanalytic therapist for years. We have a great relationship, but we've both been exploring, you know, at some at some point, um, 
you know, since I'm in training at NYU postdoc, I'll have to go be in analysis with a psychoanalyst. Um, and it does bring that same question again. Why disrupt people's therapeutic relationship? Like what's the, you know, as Lou would often say, like what's the line here between psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy? Especially, you know, going back to the historical point of the book, um, especially when the people that we cite and admire and call back to, Freud, Berenzi, even Lacan, like they were all very flexible with the frame. You know, when Freud tells an audience, like, oh, we're, we're so sorry that psychoanalysis takes a very long time. I'm ashamed to say, you know, months, sometimes a year. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. What, what happened to that? That sounds pretty good. Um, of, of course, and of course, people then say, no, but, you know, patients who really need a lot, really need years of therapy. Of course, of course, people, there are, of course, going to be people who will need a multi-year treatment. That's not a question. But do all of them need to be uh, multi-decade long journeys? And that's something I'm less sure about. Right. That's a good point. It's like, it could be that, but it doesn't, why does it, it doesn't need to be mandated to be that. You know? It doesn't have to be four times a week for this many years to count, you know? Right. Exactly. Like it's court mandated. <laughs> Two decades psychoanalysis. <laughs> no, no, you're too sick. You're too, you're too ill. Two decades of psychoanalysis prescription right here. Yeah, it, it just there are too there are too many things that just don't have to be this way. Um, same thing with and and here I'll probably you know I may be controversial, but you know Freud supervised Ferenczi in doing things, and Ferenczi did a number of things that we would today recognize as forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? At a certain point, Freud and Ferenczi and other folks like Ernst Simmel realize, you know, and I'll give this as a sort of fantastic clinical example, they realize like, hmm, you know, uh, we've been talking about your anxiety and crossing that street that you need to cross in order to get to work. And we've talked about how crossing that street would be like crossing the body of your mother, which would be a transgression, and your superego would become very harsh. We talked about that. I noticed you're still not crossing that street. What, what, if we, what if we switch this up a little bit? What if you try, what if you test out slowly but surely dipping your toe into that street, trying to cross that street, and then come back to me and talk about it? And lo and behold, when the early analysts did that, all of these fantasies would be unlocked to be worked through in the transference, in the client's associations, and that would in turn fuel the psychoanalytic process. So if they were able to experiment with these techniques, um, then what would stop us from similarly along the lines of uh, Paul Wachtel and Rebecca Curtis and others, why not integrate techniques into our body of work that can be experiential in nature, that can deepen unconscious experiencing um, and then bringing it into the transference, right? If, you know, and there are folks in contemporary Freudian Lacanian circles who will clutch their pearls at my saying this. But if Lacan can experiment with variable length sessions, like just wh where's the line? Who who has the right to determine what the, the line of technique and experimentation is for psychoanalysis? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, as long as you bring it into the treatment and everything's analyzed or whatever brought into the treatment, then what's the problem? Mm -hmm. Like now, of course, we have the Internet, which none of these analysts had before. And people have said like, oh, you can't be on the Internet. People can search you. You can't have a Facebook. But it would be like you'd have to really go out of your way to not be on the Internet at this point. And also oh, like yeah. I'm, people saying that my supervisors at my institute said that <laughs> I should be clear. <laughs> you can't have a, a Facebook presence or any of these things. People can search you you have to have like nothing and no pictures or anything but then like you know what if you have a book come out what if you're a poet or you make art and you're on the internet for other reasons like what's the problem oh you know you might have a personality Ooh. and if anything if they look then like <laughs> analyze it what do they think about it you know why were they looking you should, you should not have a personality you didn't have <laughs> enough analysis you gotta analyze the personality out of you uh, i mean look that that's another interesting um area to think about, I mean, when I, when I was in graduate school, um, there was a point where I was, uh, I mean, I'm still like deeply involved in artistic communities here in New York city, but there was a point where I was really keeping my life as an artist and my life as a psychologist, budding psychologist in totally different realms, mostly, you know, out of fears and anxieties of what if I bump into a patient, what if they bump into me, what, what will that do to the treatment? And it got so, um, like I got so kind of like hypochondriacal about it that I literally started, um, wearing a kind of garb to hide and literally mask my identity when I would go out and perform. Now, lo and behold, if you go out to public spaces, you know, dressed like a masked vigilante, the last thing that's going to happen is hide and not draw attention. Of course, it did the opposite. Um, it wound up drawing attention. Um, you know, people started, you know, wondering, like, you know, who who is that mysterious mass poet who comes in, reads, and disappears into the night? Um, and that led to this communal, um, you know, myth that I was basically a Puerto Rican superhero who would come in and do his thing and then disappear. And, and after a while, you know, uh, personally and between feedback from my friends who were just like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, why, why can't you just, why can't you just be, why can't you just be both a psychoanalytic psychologist and an artist and an activist? And, and that began the process of over years beginning to really integrate those uh, two sides of me until it's just like, okay, you know, this is what I do. I have a footprint on the internet. Most people don't, you know, people who are looking for psychotherapy, you know, don't really find it or care to find it, right? Because I may be, you know, any number of different objects to my patients. So it's not really been a problem. And to the extent that aspects of my subjectivity come out or a patient who researches me finds something about me on the internet, um, it, it becomes, you know, just another analytic object. Like people have this fear that whatever you put in to the relationship is going to contaminate the transference. Um, contemporary Freudians like to say that, especially those of us who are more relational, that we don't believe in any unconscious, we don't believe in fantasy. I think it's quite the opposite. I think Freudians don't understand fantasy well enough. Um, when people bring things in and I ask them, what does that mean to you? Let's talk about you know, your reactions to finding this piece about me. There, there's, and I think here contemporary Freudians would agree, it opens up a whole world 
of unconscious fantasy. All that to say that the unconscious isn't like a switch. You can just flip it on and off with an intervention. The unconscious is always on and it is always structuring and restructuring who we are as people. So that, if anything, has simultaneously led me to be much more flexible technically and just much more open with just being a person in the room and in the world. And lo and behold, none of that stops or blocks or whatever unconscious fantasy. Yeah, I had to go through a similar process. I had really separated my lives for a long time also Mm -hmm. and thought that I had to. And it was really hard to like take the step towards like integrating. Like it was like really hard for me. And only for me though, because like you said, like in the work, it's been fine, great. In my life, it's been fine, great. But like making Mm -hmm. that shift towards like not constantly erasing myself or dividing Mm -hmm. myself. It was really yeah. difficult. It was, like, terrifying, honestly. But it's been great. So, yeah. And everyone's like, how are you so open with everything? And you're so open with your art and all this. And I'm like, you know, it was work to be open, actually. And I hope other people just are open all the way along and don't have to go through that process of, like, shutting off a part of themselves and then bringing it back, you know? Totally. Um, there's something about the identity of the analyst that can be, um, not only can it be very restrictive, but it also enacts a very particular dimension of whiteness. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, you know, the history of whiteness is essentially the history of taking a whole bunch of people who had nothing to do with each other, who in many ways had been marginalized, displaced, uh, even oppressed by the wealthy and well-to-do, and then being told in order to control another group of people, indigenous people, black people, people of color, that, well, you're now white. And everything that made you separate, everything that made you different, everything that made you unique, now has to be melted into this pot called whiteness. Um, And the analytic identity, the analytic stance, can reproduce aspects of that historical trauma by saying to, you know, saying to people, regardless of race, you can't be yourself. You have to meld into this blank screen, all of the puns intended. Um, And I think that has a similar effect for white people. Once again, anything that makes you individual, makes you a person, has to be melted into this image. And for many analysts and therapists of color, it brings up a similar dynamic where they have to like hide or not be themselves in order to perform according to this white ideal, um, to hide who they are. And, um, you know, it's very complicated for uh, folks of color who are like presentably, recognizably racialized subjects. And then you have, you know, other complexities for folks like myself who are ambiguously ethnic, depending on the shade, the light, the alignment of the stars, I can be seen as white or as somebody who's going to rob you or sell you drugs or whatever. So then it becomes, you know, do I have to then hide my identity and who I am in order to be an analyst? Um, Or is being an analyst, uh, you know, being in a sense um, as real as you can about yourself as an invitation for the patient to be just as real with the subject of their unconsciousness? Lacan might say. Beautifully put. Now, I'm going to ask you, how did you find your way into analysis in the first place? 
Oh, man. Uh, well, for, for that, we have to go back to my mother. Uh, like, for real. So I am... Um, this is one of those, like, funny, you know, developmental accidents that kind of defines you. Um, I grew up in a community in Puerto Rico, uh, a church community, where our pastors were um, psychodynamically and psychologically informed. Um, one of them was a student at the uh, Carlos Albizu School of Clinical Psychology. Um, the other, you know, liked the idea of using psychoanalytic theories to understand people of the Bible. Like, it was just a very psychologically-minded place. And my mother, because she worked as a secretary for them in the church, would always bring back different ideas and books home and kind of become like a house analyst. Um, like she had this, like one example I can think of is um, she, she liked to like diagnose people a bit. And for me, she would often say like, ah, lo que pasa contigo es que tú eres un melancólico colérico. The thing with you is that you are a choleric melancholic. And she was using like some old time book with some old nostalgia. And I remember, especially when I got older, being like like a choleric and a melancholic, but I'm such like radiant and gregarious guy. And then I'm like, oh wait, that's a defense. <laughs> she was she was reaching behind a defense and capturing something about my psychology and the way that I function. Um she always like she always wanted this she had this fantasy of becoming a forensic psychologist which you know she could never fulfill like she completed like i think a middle school education you know she was a refugee from cuba working class like she she wasn't able to do it but she always kind of you know shared with me this fantasy once i started showing interest of me becoming a psychologist and me um being very interested in psychoanalysis psychoanalysis and psychology in my mind being the same thing. So it's just uh, from the age of like eight, nine, ten-ish thereabouts, it's just like, yes, I'm going to become a psychologist, going to be a psychoanalyst like Freud. That, that, that's, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I saw so much of it in my community that it just felt normal, right? In the way that any kid might be like, I want to be a fireman or an astronaut. I wanted to be a psychoanalyst. Um, so, you know, years later, um, my grandfather had set aside some monies for me to go to college. Um, and I had a, a godparent who worked at Rutgers. So I you know, went up to Rutgers to go to school, uh, for, go to college. And when I came stateside, you know, I was exposed to this idea um, some of which is true, some of which is this weird game of telephone. The idea that, well, psychoanalysis is kind of a Western, white thing. It's only for white people in the world to do. It doesn't speak to people like us. And this was novel to me because my life prior was just like, you know, psychoanalysis is just a, a normal thing that makes perfect sense within our community, uh, communal context. Um, so being exposed to that and kind of wrestling with, you know, what are the ways in which psychoanalysis has been a colonial project, the way that it has racist, sexist, transphobic, classist tendencies within itself. And also psychoanalysis has been a tool of post-colonial theory, 
an engine of liberation psychology. Freud himself, you know, I come to find out through personal study and research, like, oh, Freud actually did talk about culture a lot. Oh, Freud had um, an actually very nuanced understanding of the interlocking forces of race and class and how they texture the psyche. Um, there was just a lot more complexity in this thing called psychoanalysis, and, and that, in many respects, was the impetus for the book. I, I called it a people's history of psychoanalysis because I felt a need to try to capture a, a perspective on psychoanalysis and its theory that comes from below, uh, as liberation theologians might say, a perspective from outside, a perspective of what is outcast. And wouldn't you know it, psychoanalysis is a theory about what is outcast in psyche and in society. Um, and so it, it really, uh, it was a very circular kind of process for me in that I went from really like loving Freud to suddenly rejecting Freud and be like, oh, that's, that's the bad object, that's racist, put it over there, to then circling around and coming to, you know, a return to Freud of sorts, uh, a reappraisal of Freud, both in terms of his own lacks, um, mistakes, biases, and blind spots, and also the ways in which, yes, he was quite visionary, especially with respect to these issues, in ways that set the foundation for a whole body of post-colonial, anti-racist, and critical thinking that, as I show in the book, you can draw a clear line, not just theoretically, but in terms of personal relationships that some of these characters had with each other from um, the 1920s throughout. Um, so it's been a very you know, nonlinear process for me. Um, I now find myself, as I mentioned before, in psychoanalytic training. I still have a very critical take on institutes and theory and how that works. Um, but my institute, um, the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, just a bit of a mouthful, they've been very open and very receptive to what I have to say and the criticisms that I have to make from within. And I very much still see um, my goal as one of becoming a psychoanalyst and continuing these conversations. My, um, my, my North Star in a lot of these issues um, in many ways has been the trajectory of Franz Fanon. Um, in the same way that Freud often isn't recognized for his critical thinking on race and social justice, so too Fanon is not often recognized for the psychoanalytic thinker that he was. Um, th there's a story where near the end of his life, um, he died very young at the age of 36 from leukemia. He would tell his interns and secretaries that after the, the Algerian war is over, he would like to go into analysis and engage in psychoanalytic training. Before he died, he was able to connect his secretary to a psychoanalyst. Um, and his secretary, you know, very hesitant, you know, goes and meets this analyst uh, who was a white psychoanalyst. And in the first session, she breaks down and cries. And the analyst asks, you know, why are you crying? And she says, I thought you would be black. So I, I bring that story up because we have to... Um, really kind of envision our image for who is a psychoanalyst, who can be a psychoanalyst. Um, and I see, you know, my own project in line with that 
but also in opening the door for others who are coming behind me to be able to enter into analysis, to be able to engage in psychoanalysis without breaking the bank or being an undue burden, and in turn make unique and radiant contributions to our field. Um, I guess I wanted to just briefly recap some of the main takeaways and ideas from the book, if I may. Yeah, of course. Yeah? Okay. So I'll start it off with, um, yeah, so a, a, one major project of the book was to um, kind of develop a history of psychoanalysis that took into account the various uh, post-colonial, uh, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, um, and people of color voices that have actually textured psychoanalytic history. Um, but almost as an accident of sorts, because I wasn't thinking of this when I was starting to write the book, kind of discovered that there's a certain set of ideas about the psyche, race, and capitalism that consistently kept showing up across the works in particular of Freud, the first and second generation of psychoanalysts, um, uh, Franz Fanon's work, and Paolo Freire. Ideas that then went on and informed the development of Ignacio Martín Baró's liberation psychology. Now, without spoiling the book too much, I, I just wanted to share a couple of points um, about what those ideas are. And those ideas revolve around the question, why are systems of inequality so stable? Why are they so resistant to change? Well, from Freud onward, um, it turns out, well, you know, a great many people who are oppressed, who are uh, violently pushed down by the system, on the one hand, develop an intense hostility towards a people in a system, as Freud says, that were made possible by their work and in which they had too little a share. So why don't they just turn this thing upside down? Freud and also Fanon and Freire argue that among the powerful, among their masters, the oppressed also see in them their ideals. And they have this fantasy that they can become like their master if they simply displace their hostility towards another group of people that is then seen as the source of their suffering. This is what Otto Fenichel called um, race as a weapon of class warfare. In some, that not only can you get um, oppressed communities to turn inward, right, through various forms of self-hatred and internalized depression, but you can also get them to turn against other oppressed people through this identification with the oppressor. Now, what is the answer or one possible answer to this dynamic? And here again, I go back to Freud and I pick out this idea that cycles back and again over these other theorists. Freud actually did talk about social justice, and he has a very interesting model of what he calls social justice. He gives the example of a person who's contracted syphilis, and he says that beneath the syphilitic's anxiety of passing on their infection to somebody else, that is belied by an unconscious aggressive wish to say, well, why should I be excluded from so much? Why should I carry this disease? and be marginalized? Why shouldn't others be marginalized just like I am? But, Freud argues, the syphilitic does not pass on their disease out of an effective tie with the other. 
So for Freud, social justice involves a disidentification with the one who has hurt us and an affective, emotional tie to others, along with the ethical stance that I renounce this desire for power, I renounce this desire to inflict damage upon others and instead engage in some act of solidarity. Freud would talk about it in terms of eros overcoming thanatos. Um, Franz Fanon would talk about the importance of being aware of the anger, hostility that is encrypted in one's body. Paulo Freire would talk about the importance that one not simply engage in a reversal of terms between oppressor and oppressed, but create a humanizing dialogue that restores humanity for all. I call this in the book a form of political mentalization, that if we can reflect upon our own self-experience in a political context, and if we can reflect upon the other's experience as well, we can bring into full view the broader system that affects and hurts all of us. And if we can create allegiances along those lines, we may be able to engage in action to change the system. One quick contemporary example of this would be the work of Ian Hani Lopez, who has conducted research showing that if you can craft a message that is able to, for example, bring in white people into the fold of racial justice work, and that communicates that it's only when white people are able to come together with people of color and see that it is racism that is used to manipulate us in order to provide power to the wealthy and well-to-do, we can create a society that works for everyone, white, black, and brown. So, so that captures, in a sense, the book's diagnosis of systems of inequality and a series of prescriptions of how to create a message that's psychoanalytically informed for leading towards liberation, transformation, and social change. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Daniel Jose Castambide. For more, please visit his website, drgpsychotherapy.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, 
or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. And now, Shadow Play, Strategies, and Ritual from The Chapel is Empty by myself, an acoustic timber frequency, now available digitally on Bandcamp or on CD in deluxe and standard editions through chapart.net. I had to drink up all the water in my carafe and was still thirsty. Towards morning, I slept and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door. So I guess I must have been sleeping. Need context. And that context is the three shadow arts. Shadow play, strategies, and ritual. How then can sorcerers whose art is precise, uniting with one's own inner opposite, I use intimacy, love, and sex. I consider my work to be Buckle of Isis. Picking up on one is atoms and obsessional ideas The conflict now stands out clearly. On the one hand, the dream belongs wholly to sleep. On the other hand, the to make these principles of limit clear at the outset, for they are as much a description of scope and method as they are statement of faith. First, no matter how far up or down we go in the psyche, science and theology for their psychic premises, so the tradition of depth psychology is to stay at home and to create its own ground as it proceeds. This ground, psychodynamics, psychotherapy, psychopathology, is surely well trodden by endeavor to explore and disclose is possible only within the classic confines of the old, the known, and the limited. New 
pleasure to watch. You looked like a newly married couple. He smiles at Severine. Severine, rather aggressive. I suppose we looked a bit ridiculous. Oh no, it looked very beautiful. Reassuring. Reassuring.